Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company again. As I keep saying, tell your friends, it's easy to watch. Do what you've done. Just go to the website, adh.tv, and the Watch Now button is at the top, and it's all there, live and on demand, and it's free. Tonight on the program, we'll be looking at something which not too many commentators are prepared to speak about, and that's Australia's woeful military capability. The very respected Greg Sheridan will join me from Melbourne. He's the foreign editor for the Australian newspaper. Much has been made about national security. In what is an increasingly unstable world, I'd say a more dangerous world, national security is everything. I fear, as does Greg Sheridan, that politicians spend too much time commenting on the threats we face instead of preparing for those threats. We must ask ourselves if push comes to shove, will a Biden America be really there for us? Cast your mind back to August last year and the Americans' disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. It announced to the world the weakness of the West. And look what's happened since. In a desperate bid to woo voters on Saturday, the Coalition's trying to drum up this super for homes policy. I'll look at that in a moment as well. And then national security. Greg Sheridan wrote recently, the Morrison government apparently wants to keep talking national security, even though the China Solomons issue reflects so badly on it because it sees security as its issue rather than Labor's. Well, he's right. In the light of the China Solomon Security Pact, questions must be asked whether the coalition really are better equipped to manage our security. I'll tell you what the punter is saying, and that is that Prime Minister Morrison and Foreign Minister Payne must have been asleep at the wheel while the Solomon Islands and China were playing footsies. Anyway, we'll look at that and talk to an outstanding Liberal of the future, Senator Alex Antich from South Australia. And we'll go to Britain for the latest there with David Maddox. All that and more coming up. And remember, you can send an email to me to have your say. Just email me, Jones at adh.tv. Well, there is no doubt that the Prime Minister's housing announcement on Sunday, pitched ostensibly to young people, has captured headlines. The real question is, has it captured votes? Put simply, the coalition policy will allow first home buyers to withdraw 40% of their superannuation balance up to a maximum of $50,000 for a home deposit. The super withdrawal would then have to be returned, including a proportion of the capital gain, if the property was sold. Now, maths tend to get in the way. The median price of a unit in Sydney is just under $800,000. The maths would tell you that you'd need a $160,000 deposit in order to have a look in. Stripping your superannuation of $50,000 would still leave you with a long way to go. Then there's the question of how much money young ones have left in their superannuation account. Remember, during coronavirus, something approximating 3 million Australians withdrew a total of $36 billion from their superannuation. And many under 35 actually drained their accounts. Then there are further disturbing statistics which make the take-up of such a proposal to be in all likelihood very limited. Tax office statistics for the 2018-19 financial year show the average 30 to 34-year-old couple had a combined superannuation balance of $72,000. If under the plan they can only withdraw 
to help buy a house, that's a fairly piddling $29,000. The 25 to 29 year olds have even less and they would on tax office statistics qualify for withdrawal of only 14,000. Well, the other thing to remember, of course, is that many of these young people carry significant hex debts, which are a millstone around their necks for years. This is a far more complicated issue than the Prime Minister's announcement to have you believe. Notwithstanding that he is, I'm sure, well-intentioned. It's prompted by the simple question, can young people afford to buy a house? Compulsory superannuation, for all its advantages, is about taking money from the worker and sticking it aside for retirement. And currently that amount, out of your pay, is 10%, legislated to rise to 12%. Many workers would say, well, I'd rather have the money now to help me afford a better standard of living. But the deductions are compulsory, made somewhat attractive by the fact that the super contributions are taxed at only 15 cents in the dollar. But of course, that also means that people on big salaries who would be paying a high rate of tax get the biggest benefit from the tax rate being reduced to 15 cents. So on the one hand, the young would-be home buyer is forced to put money into super, then being told that he or she can take it out, but then they must put it back if the home is sold. There are several problems here unrelated to the announcement by the Prime Minister, but which mitigate against the likelihood that many voters will find the proposal attractive. As I've already said, many of these young people are saddled with unconscionable levels of hex debt. How they pay that off, pay rent and save for a deposit, I have absolutely no idea. Then, as I said, during coronavirus, the same young people were encouraged to raid their super just to pay for rent and groceries. These were young people put out of work by what I have regularly called the overreaction by government in its response to coronavirus. The third point is the most obvious and unfortunately beyond the Prime Minister's control, and that is the supply of housing stock. That is the responsibility of state governments. Some state ministers across the country responsible for approving housing stock seem to have no more brains or understanding of the issue than a plate of Brussels sprouts. There are reputable developers all over the country, in every state, ready to build housing stock. And they're being held up by green bureaucrats because, as Barnaby Joyce has said, there will be a frog here or a lizard there or some invented and obscure edict about heritage value. Meanwhile, while state bureaucrats play their left-wing ideologies, housing supply is hopelessly limited. The National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation has forecast that the supply of new homes over the coming decade will be 163,400 lower than needed to keep up with demand. Now, with population growth, I'd think that's a conservative figure. If nothing else, the Prime Minister has drawn attention to a distressing reality. Superannuation is meant to provide for a respectable retirement. It is very difficult to enjoy a respectable retirement if you don't own your own home and you're still paying rent. The rightful goal of social and economic policy should be, above all else, to enable all Australians who want to and who work to be able to afford a home and contribute as well towards a comfortable retirement. The fact that both these goals together are beyond the capacity of many, especially the young, is a profoundly disturbing feature of Australian life. We have $3.5 trillion in superannuation and you people who'll be paying taxes forever and a day to clear the debt can't afford a home no matter how hard you work 
And without that, there's no guarantee of a comfortable retirement. It's an awful thing to say, but for young, for the young, it's a gloomy and tragic picture in a once wealthy Australia. Well, you've heard my views on this housing policy, which, as I've just said, may have captured the headlines, but I'm not sure it has captured votes. There are many reasons for that, as I've explained. If it has been pitched to young people, then many of them have already raided their superannuation account during coronavirus to pay for rent and groceries. But even if that weren't the case, the tax office has indicated that the average superannuation balance for a 30 to 34-year-old couple is $72,000. 40% of that is $29,000, which won't do much to help you buy a house in metropolitan Australia. I've argued often in the past that many young people are saddled for years with unconscionable levels of hex debt. How they pay that off, pay rent and save for a deposit, I have no idea. But I do know this, with the very best intentions, their problems won't be solved by the Prime Minister's announcement on Sunday night. Greg Sheridan, who writes splendidly and with great clarity, has made some significant points on this issue, along with the other critical issue of national importance, national security. And Greg joins me. Greg, thank you for your time again. How did you interpret that announcement? It at least has focused on this critical issue of housing affordability. Well, Alan, it's great to be with you. I mean, uh, I've got to say to you, Alan, this campaign has been a complete mystery to me. I can't understand why the Liberals have not wanted to fight on a single issue of substance uh, and principle with the Labor Party. Now, at least this issue, it focuses on affordability of houses, but it also embodies a Liberal principle, which is that the superannuation money in your account belongs to you. It doesn't belong to a trade union-dominated superannuation fund. It doesn't belong to the government. And... Um, you know, to confiscate 10% of your wages for your whole working life until you're 67 um, is an imposition on your freedom. And if you end up in retirement without a house, you're much more likely to experience poverty, Definitely. whether you've got a couple of hundred Definitely. grand in your super account Definitely. or not. So just so, taking that point up, you know, should we have compulsory superannuation? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm betwixt and between on it, frankly, Alan. And Honestly, I mean, I'm a great beneficiary of it. It's been terrific for me personally. But uh, there are so many tax concessions now yes. involved in it yes. that you don't know that it really saves the budget a razoo at the end of the day. You know, um, you get so many, uh, so much concessional tax treatment and it's so complicated. Mm. But if you are going to have it, I mean, a lot of countries, Singapore and a lot of other countries, allow you to use your super to buy a house. Mm. So there are only a few things you can do with your super. Um, in Singapore, you can use it for a medical emergency. Well, we've got Medibank, I suppose, or Medicare, rather. But I, I certainly think if you're going to have compulsory super, you it, ought to be able to use it at least once in your life. Yeah, to buy it, it does seem odd, doesn't it, Greg, that under compulsory super, you take money from the worker to put into super. Then the worker is told that he or she can take it out, but then they must put it back in if the home is sold. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, I think that's for... Yeah, I think that's very unfair and, and quite silly too and very unliberal. It's yeah. against liberal principles. But So in my opinion, the Prime Minister has been, when everything else has failed, he's thought, hello, why not try a liberal policy yeah. for a change and just see if that, if, that might, if that might work. Every form of appeasement of wokeness and bipartisan... You know, he hasn't had a fight with the Labor Party about anything. He's just tried to neutralise everything. We're net zero too, we're woke too, you know. And then at the last minute, he says, hey, how about I try something which embodies... 
individual choice. But I think it's silly to force somebody to put it back. Say you say you get forty thousand or fifty thousand dollars out of your combined super, you and your wife, and you make a bit of a profit on your first house, mm. and you're not getting any money from mum and dad, and then you're going to sell your first house and use that equity to get a bigger house to accommodate your family, and that'll be a greater store of wealth for your future. Well, then you've got to pay the fifty grand yeah, back. You don't have if you've had a ten or twenty percent yeah. capital grain. So then you've got to pay 60 or 70 grand back. So that knocks a big hole in your equity for house number two. So that that seems to me against liberal principles, mm. against freedom of choice, against the idea mm. that it's your money. And after all, if you think that you can build better than the flaming superannuation fund, why shouldn't you? I mean, why, why does big government, big superannuation funds get to boss you around? Oh, unbelievable. Let's go to this other matter. You said the Morrison speech was too long and lacked any theme and, quote, consistently consisted mainly of spending promises, most of them indistinguishable from Labor's promises. Which brings us to national security, where the Prime Minister said, quote, we've committed more than $100 billion over the next two decades, $100 billion, to develop a sovereign guided weapons enterprise. Is that true? No, it's not. It's more or less an outright fib by the Prime Minister. Um, and... So this government talks great talk on national security. I agree with everything they say, but they're, they're not actually doing anything. They're not going to deliver a new weapon for decades and decades and decades. But on this matter, these two figures, they've committed $1 billion, so that's 1% of what the Prime Minister said, to a sovereign-guided weapons enterprise in Australia. So that means factories in Australia making the missiles that we use in our defence But wasn't force. that announced two years it ago? It was announced two years ago, and it's been announced almost every week ever since. It gets re-announced again and again and again, and a credulous press keeps thinking it's a new thing. But nothing happened on it for two years. Just a couple of weeks ago, they announced who the industry partners are. So the enterprise hasn't started yet. They've just, they're in talks about talks, and it'll be years before we get a single factory. Now, the $100 billion figure is all the money that we're scheduled to spend on missiles almost all of which are imported at the moment. We have a tiny little bit of manufacturing of parts of some missiles, but 99.9% .9 of it is imported. So that's all the missiles we're going to import, plus all the infrastructure around them, all the command and control systems, which we also import, all that sort of thing. That is not part of our sovereign guided weapons enterprise. That's just missiles that we're going to use. So the Prime Minister has conflated the figure, the total figure for everything we're going to spend on missiles in the next 20 years, which will be almost entirely spent in foreign lands on foreign companies with his $1 billion promise to create a, a, um, a missile factory in Australia. Now, that is as close to an out-and-out -out, uh, fib as you get. And the government does this all the time in national security. It's, its figures are so ropeable, and, uh, or so ropey rather, not ropeable, so ropey and unreliable. Um, the poor old normal member of the public doesn't follow these no. things and it just sounds impressive. Well, just OK, wow, okay. You, you say that's untrue. Well, what about the announcement that the government allocated $10 billion to build a base for our future nuclear-propelled submarines to be acquired under AUKUS on the East Coast? Hasn't that been announced long ago, long before AUKUS? Absolutely. So... Um, I think this is going to cause me to fall off the government's Christmas card list, Alan, but there you go. It's a, that's a, a sacrifice I'm willing to make. But in the government's uh, defence strategic update and similar documents, it said we're going to need an East Coast base
for our submarines. So this is back when we were building the French submarines. So we're going to get 12 new submarines. We're going to need to keep some of them on the east coast and some of them on the west coast because otherwise if a bad guy comes to the east coast and they're all on the west coast, it takes you three months to get round to confront the bad guy, you know. So then the night before the government made this big $10 billion, and it, alloc and it said this will be between 6 to $10 billion. So that was about two years, ago, two, two years or more ago. Then on the night before the Prime Minister's speech announcing this big, fabulous new base somewhere in the East Coast, they still haven't decided where, the Prime Minister's speech was released to the media, including me, and it said $10 billion for this new base. There was no timeline. Then... So we all thought it meant $10 billion, you know, in the now, near future, yeah. sort of next year or the year mm. after or now, for goodness sake. But, of course, now is a word that never applies to this government and defence. <laughs> and then when the speech was delivered the next day, there was a phrase in it which had not been part of the speech as distributed to the press, which said $10 billion over the next 20 years. Now... Alan, you, you know this better than me, but a government which is promising what it's going to spend in 20 years' time, it, it's, that's a kind of a science fiction promise. It, yeah. it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so, again, it's an impressive headline so, with no substance. It's so all this, no cattle. Does this undermine the government's credibility with defence professionals? And eventually, I suppose, I think you've said, seeps into public consciousness. I mean, who is writing this stuff for the Prime Minister? When I wrote for a Prime Minister, every syllable was challenged for its accuracy. Well, I think you have to conclude, Alan, this is such a pattern. I mean, I could give you 100 examples of exactly this sort of thing. This is such a pattern. I mean, Peter Dutton is saying we're going to get these AUKUS subs uh, much sooner than the 2040s or 50s, yet... Scott Morrison and Vice Admiral Jonathan Mead say we won't get the first one before 2040. If we get one every two years, that means we get the eighth one in the 2050s. And there are a million other examples. Now, I think you've got to conclude the government is doing this on purpose, that it's decided it's too hard to overcome the defence bureaucracy and actually buy and build weapons for the next five years. It abolished the only armed drone program we had, the Sky Guardian, because it's like the hospital in Yes Minister. Perfect hospital because it has yeah. no patients. Yeah. We've got the perfect defence force because it has no weapons. And this, I think there's not a single defence professional who takes the government at its word. And even though the government thinks it can bamboozle the public, eventually the public works out, mm. you know, guess what? Mm. They made all these announcements, but nothing has actually mm. happened. Here we are after nine years of Liberal government. We still don't have a submarine and there's no submarine on the horizon. Right. And eventually the public thinks... These fellows are having a lender me. Well, what about the, what you wrote recently? You said the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the most powerful, shocking wake-up call to Western strategic complacency since the end of the Vietnam War. You said Australia, despite the lofty rhetoric, shows no signs of taking this historic wake-up call seriously. Of all nations in the Western alliance, you said, we are long-term amongst the most vulnerable and the least prepared. Well, I believe that's true, Alan, and, you know, it's no fun for me to be, um, you know, so offside with a centre-right government and everything, but, you know, I think I've got an obligation to the truth, and, uh, and that is the truth. I mean, two things have changed the nature of modern warfare. The way the Chinese embraced an asymmetric strategy, they're not as powerful as the Americans, so they said, how can we make it impossible for the Americans to operate near our shores? They did that through missiles. Then along came Russia and Ukraine, showing that a state can be massively attacked with no notice at all. 
and Ukraine has fought the Russians to a standstill and may have a victory by using missiles and drones. So a big Russian capital ship worth a couple of billion dollars, Ukraine with $40 million worth of missiles, sinks this ship using uh, drones to distract its defences and operating often with mobile phones. So what does a small power like Australia do when confronting a big power like China? It invests in missiles and drones and asymmetric capabilities. What are we doing? We're spending $30 billion on heavy armour. We're buying 75 tanks, which is not a credible capability in any context and has no application to China. We're not buying missiles. We're not manufacturing missiles. We have no ground-launched missiles. We could have 40,000 or, you know, even, say, 4,000 missiles across northern Australia and ground-based launches, which would make it impossible for the Chinese to feel safe whenever they're in our waters. Mm. Instead of which, they come into our waters, whether it's Exmouth or the Arafura Sea or anywhere else, and they know that whatever happens, we can do them no harm. Mm. That there are no Now, that's OK while the Americans are providing for our security. But if you get a left-wing Democrat president or a Republican who's isolationist and they think they've got better things to do with the American taxpayers' dollars than guarantee Australian security, we might have to provide for our own security one day. And despite all the brave talk, we're doing nothing about it. Unbelievable. Magnificent exposition. Greg, I think people listening to you are absolutely bewildered. Thank you for the clarity of your thoughts. Thank you for coming on the program. And we do look forward to talking to you again, Greg. There he is. Thanks, Greg, Alan. It's Greg great Sherrod. to be with you. And Wonderful. Great fellow. to see you in such yeah. great form. Thank you, Greg. Greg Sheridan, the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. Look, every Australian would hope on Saturday for a fair and honest selection. Mind you, if over a quarter of eligible voters have already voted, most probably illegally, because they don't meet the criteria that entitles you to vote early, that prompts a very important question. Is the Electoral Commission asleep at the wheel? The taxpayer funds this Electoral Commission to the tune of over $200 million. What investigations have they done into Mr Holmes at court and his Climate 200 crowd backing Teal independents to knock off Liberal candidates who actually share the same somewhat deranged views about climate change? But the real issue is here is that they seek to, to, to do whatever is necessary to promote the transition from coal and other fossil fuels to renewable energy. So, what financial interests does Mr Holmes Accord have in the renewable energy industry? Mr Holmes Accord seems to be in bed with Mike Cannon-Brooks and Malcolm Turnbull. Should we know what business interests they have that are related to taking action on climate change? They say that climate change represents a financial and business opportunity on the scale of the Industrial Revolution at the turn of the 19th century. Now, forget the overblown rhetoric, but what financial and business opportunities are available to Mr Holmes Accord and his campaign on climate change if they were to win the argument to transition away from coal to renewable energy? They want coal in particular wiped out. How would they benefit? from a massive shift, if, if it were possible, which it isn't, to renewable energy. Mr Holmes, of course, was a pioneering supporter of wind energy. Indeed, he promoted a community ownership model for Hepburn Wind Farm near his Victorian rural property. The very same project received a $1 million grant from the Victorian government last year. Interestingly, Mr Holmes, of course, stepped down from the board in 2015 when the company recorded a massive loss. But Mr Holmes Accord's Climate 200 group 
is donating 10 million to these teal independents committed to tougher emissions targets. Why shouldn't the Electoral Commission ask Mr Holmes a court about his portfolio of family and other businesses focused on making money out of a boom in alternative technology to coal, mistakenly called clean energy technology? Who are Decarb Ventures, a company Mr Holmes Accord set up in January this year? Mr Holmes Accord has said that Decarb is pursuing global investment in clean energy technology. Mr Holmes Accord reportedly has shareholdings in several companies that profit from investment in renewables and clean energy. These companies reportedly include an outfit 5B Holdings, in which Mr Holmes Accord reportedly has a stake, along with Mr Turnbull and the Future Superannuation Group. Mr Holmes Accord is a director of a charity called the Australian Environmental Grant Makers Network, which was reportedly set up to identify environmental funding opportunities. Mr Holmes Accord denies he will profit from his political activities, but surely an electoral commission dedicated to fair elections should investigate where the advocacy of these teal independents could lead financially if they were successful. No one is suggesting Mr Holmes Accord is doing anything wrong, but for voters to make considered decisions, they need to be aware of all the facts. If there were a hung parliament, would the teal independents get into bed with the Greens? Could they then guarantee to deliver government to the Labor Party on the condition that their climate policy demands were met? And if they were, would people like Mr Holmes Accord and his companies and even Mr Turnbull and anyone on this Climate 200 bandwagon, would they be beneficiaries? These questions need to be asked and answered. If that is not what the Electoral Commission is about, then I believe it should be. Well, each week we take you to Britain for the latest on what's happening in Britain and Europe, and we're joined by the highly regarded and very popular with our viewers, David Maddox, the political editor of The Express Online. You can read David at express.co.uk. So, David, thank you again for your time. Of universal interest is the issue of the Queen and her health. Just a few weeks from the four-day weekend to celebrate her Platinum Jubilee, there was some shock when she stood aside for her heir, Prince Charles, who took over the duties of reading her annual speech to mark the opening of Parliament. The sight of Charles sitting next to the imperial state crown marked a sea change in the transition of the monarchy. I should say to our viewers that at 96 years of age, the Queen has now surpassed Prince Johann of Liechtenstein to become the third longest reigning monarch of all time, behind Louis XIV of France and King Pumipon of Thailand. So, David, I don't think even the most ardent supporters of the Queen expect her to attend everything, as she once did, but she is expected to attend two events, the Trooping of the Colour for the famed photo on the balcony and the Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral. What is the latest on this perplexing issue of the Queen's health? So, I mean, uh, obviously it's, it's very serious, uh, but, you know, she is a lady in her mid-90s, 96. Uh, she's frail. Uh, she's an elderly lady in the end. And uh, she cannot, she obviously cannot do everything that she used to do before. And she'd slowly been passing on responsibilities to Prince Charles 
Uh, I'd be very surprised if she ever does a state opening of Parliament mm, again. I agree. She's already announced uh, her wish, hasn't she? You know, she was, she, was at, she was with her horses. You know, she was at the Windsor Horse Show. Yeah. She was there to open the Queen Elizabeth line. So, you know, she, she looked pretty good health yesterday yeah. when she was doing her duties yesterday, which is uh, quite heartening. But She's announced yeah. that Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, should be Queen Consort when Charles becomes King. She's urged Commonwealth leaders to support Charles as their next head when the time comes. Uh, David, Charles at 73 must be the best prepared monarchy in monarch in waiting ever. <laughs> what is the British view of Charles as King? Well, there, there, there are question marks. And uh, in fact, this very weekend, we're running a poll to ask people what they think about the future of a monarchy uh, after the Queen's reign ends, because, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, Charles has a lot of supporters. Uh, he would be very different to the Queen. I think you guys in Australia know that only too well. Uh, but, you know, he is seen as quite eccentric. He doesn't have the kind of universal <laughs> adoration that the Queen has too. He talks uh, to plants. Nice to add it. You know? <laughs> he talks to plants, for uh, God's sake. Well, he does very, very, very business with the trees, you know. Uh, there is also um, allegations around, you know, uh, uh, money for honours with uh, uh, Saudi Arabians and things, uh, which... Uh, is kind of floating around in the background and could be a problem. I mean, mm. uh, there doesn't seem to be anything that's sticking on that at the moment, but there have been some reports. So, Just on the, um, on the Queen, you mentioned the Royal Windsor Horse Show, two and a half hours of a horse-based spectacle. There was music and comedy, Tom Cruise, Helen Mirren. I love the comedian's joke right at the end when he said, Your Royal Highness, on behalf of everyone here, I'd like to humbly thank you for choosing us over the state opening of Parliament. The Queen looked OK. She gave a waving response. I mean, this gladdened the hearts of many. And as a measure of her popularity, when she arrived by car, the crowd just stood and kept on cheering. Um, she loves her horses, though, doesn't she? Well, she, she definitely prefers horses to politicians. I think that's, uh, <laughs> yes. that's without doubt. I, I, I've had several people tell me that uh, actually she... Uh, perhaps decided to give the politicians a miss in favour of the horses. So, uh, you know, at, uh, and, and, you know, honestly, who would blame her? She's had, like, I know. You know, she's had over 70 years of it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, but she's got she, an she intimate knowledge. Herself. She's got an intimate <laughs> knowledge of her horses. I mean, what would have delighted her most was seeing her mm. own horses led through the arena, the Shire horses, the thoroughbreds, and then her own fell pony, Carlton Lima Emma, I should say to our viewers, a fell pony is a, those tiny little things. They're a working breed of mountain yeah, pony. Right. So she obviously got a lot of pleasure out of all of that. Now, to serious matters of state, Starmer, the leader of the opposition, mm. are British police under pressure to fine Keir Starmer if any coronavirus breach is proven? I, I think it's the opposite way around. I think Starmer has come out and said, I will resign to put pressure on the police not to find him and not to find him guilty because he, he's posing them a black and white situation where he will go. But, you know, it, it's becoming increasingly difficult to see how he can avoid it. He's failed to tell the truth. I'm, I'm not going to say lie, but, you know, people can take their own uh, uh, interpretation of it. He's failed to tell the truth significantly on four occasions about this. Firstly, he said his deputy wasn't there, and she was, Angela Rayner was there. Secondly, he said only six people were at the event, 
Then, it, uh, then he said 15, then 20, it turns out, were at the event. Thirdly, they said it was just, it wasn't pre-planned. It was in a memo. It was pre-planned. And fourthly, they said it was just a break in work. Well, it appears that they all went to bed afterwards, so that wasn't a break in work at all. You know, and it's it's looking pretty bad for him, I have to say, uh, especially somebody who's been grandstanding and virtue signalling for months now on the whole party goat issue. Isn't it true that three months before this Beergate incident involving Starmer and his Labor colleagues, the National Police amended their COVID advice to get tougher on rule breakers and there was a surge in fines across the country, which would make you wonder right. how Starmer could avoid a fine. Well, I, I, I don't see how he could avoid a fine. I mean, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Rishi Sunak, literally got fined for walking into a meeting early where a cake happened to be sitting on the table. Uh, you know, so if that is now the bar for a fine, I mean, it, 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 we've talked about this before, but it, it just shows how ridiculous these lockdown rules how can Starmer say he didn't break any rules? I mean, I know the poll has found that not too many Britons believe him. No, in fact, about seven in ten Brits uh, uh, don't believe him at all and uh, think he should be fined. Uh, I don't know. I mean, politicians can brazen it out until they run out of road. We've seen it time and time again. And... Uh, I think that's what Starmer's doing, in the hope that he, you know, the police won't, you, won't find him guilty. You've written an inter interesting piece, David, on Dr Frank Luntz, whose political insights helped hmm. George W Bush and David Cameron win power. He's delivered this stunning lecture where he said that the twin evils of wokeism on the left and popularism hmm. on the right are destroying democracy in America. And he likened wokeism hmm. to coronavirus. He talked about infecting the country without a cure and he was critical of Donald Trump's populism mm. too. What do you make of that speech? Yeah. I thought it was very interesting. I, I, it was, uh, you know, uh, in a lot of Western countries, I, I mean, I see it uh, with you guys down in Australia. It's certainly true in this country. It's certainly true in America. You know, we're in the middle of a culture wars. Uh, we're, you know, on the trans issues, on the... BLM issues on, on all sorts of issues, you know, statues being pulled down, our history being torn up and all the rest of it. And really, Frank Luntz's argument was that the solution to this is to not follow the Trump route of populism because that is equally destructive. And or you may win an election, but you lose the country, was his argument. I thought, uh, and, and I think there's a lot to be said to that. I thought you know. the interesting point was that young people aged 18 to 29, 57% felt that, you know, mm. the country, your country, was racist, that it discriminated against people, yeah. 20%. But, but this is the stuff that's being taught in schools and universities. And the 18 to 29-year-olds yeah, now were at school and it was pumped into them. They should be ashamed of their country because it's racist and practice white supremacy. I mean... I mean, I hate that word woke, but to our viewers basically means being alert to racial prejudice and discrimination. So I'm a bit yeah. woke and I believe that Britain's a racially prejudiced country and discriminates against sections of the community. Why be surprised when this stuff's so, being taught in schools? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, let's let's say it as it is. There's a lot of brainwashing going on in schools. And uh, I know my 
my son complains about it. my son's uh, uh taking his a levels at the moment my son complains about it all the time you know he's uh uh and some of his friends do and uh, it's uh, the way uh we're really trying to you know create a generation of people who hate our culture hate our yes. history yes. and hate our country yes. I mean, it's it's shocking you know um, and it, and it does need to be taken on, uh, uh, and it does need to be fought. But who and, uh, is taking this stuff on? I mean, what's being done about it? Nothing being done here in this country. What's being done about it in yours? Well, there are, you know, there are political parties which are uh, we have reclaim and reform, which used to be the Brexit Party. Uh, we it's still a significant a significant part of a Conservative Party that are fighting the battle, but at the moment. Uh, they're losing ground. They're, mm. they're, they're losing on it. Mm. Uh, too many, too much of even the Conservative Party mm. embraces this nonsense. Mm. And As then you, when you talk about Labour yeah. and Lib Dems, it's it's mad. You know, That's it's it. As you sow, so shall you reap. This is what we're sowing in the education system, and this is what we're reaping. David, yeah. good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. There is. It's David Maddox. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's a simple battle, isn't it? to see that our young people in the classrooms and universities are told the truth rather than made receptacles for this ideological nonsense. David Maddox, who's the political editor of The Express Online, you can read him, writes splendidly, express.co.uk. See you next week, David. Good to talk to you. Well, look, people ask me regularly what the talent pool is like, in particular in the Federal Liberal Party. They see this bloke, Senator Birmingham, as one of the election spokespeople for the coalition. Could there be any person more unimpressive but of course, he's part of the left faction and they get the Guernseys. I can assure you out there, there are some very, very good people in the federal parliamentary Liberal Party, but they're not part of the soft left. And that's what the Liberal Party is going to have to address after Saturday. Tomorrow night, I'll have a look at what I see is likely to happen on Saturday night, seat by seat. Join me for that. To those of you who ask about the Prime Minister not appearing on this program, we have asked his office many times. We've had no response. Senator Alex Antich is a man who gives true Liberals a sense of hope. He's only been a Liberal Senator for South Australia since 2019. He's the first Australian Senator of Serbian descent. His father arrived from Yugoslavia in 1957 and eventually became Director of Thoracic Medicine at Royal Adelaide Hospital. Alex Antich holds arts and law degrees from the University of Adelaide. He served on the Adelaide City Council from 2014 to 2018 publicly arguing that local government must concentrate on the delivery of services rather than, quote, being used as a vehicle for identity politics, unquote. In his maiden speech, he spoke of his support for the development of an Australian nuclear power industry. He was one of five coalition senators in November last year to support Pauline Hanson's COVID-19 bill on vaccination status, that is, a bill to prevent discrimination against those who chose not to be vaccinated. It was, though, Senator Antich who asked Professor Brendan Murphy, head of the Federal Department of Health, how he would define a woman. Let's look at this again. This is Senator Antich, and it's a metaphor of why we need people like this man in the parliament and what talent exists within the Liberal Party. Have a look at this again and the silence of these bureaucratic Brussels sprouts. For with a very simple question for the department, and that is one which has troubled me for a great deal of time with the bureaucracy here. Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? <coughs> department of Health. Definition of a man, definition of a woman. Anyone? 
pretty basic. Basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> there, look, I think there are there are a variety of definitions, and I, I think a simple perhaps, one. perhaps to give a, a more fulsome answer, we should take that on notice. Uh, Senator Antich has joined us. Thank you for your time. Those people with blank faces are part of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. They're on big money, paid for by taxpayers. So one answer to what is a woman, we don't define it ourselves in the Act. Alex, where the hell are we? Well, Alan, thanks for having me. Look, it was, there were pretty extraordinary scenes, actually, in estimates that week. That, that was actually a clip from the Department of Health, which um, I, I asked the same question to, but I had actually asked that question of the Workplace um, Equity Agency or Workplace Equality Agency, who actually do have a statutory definition of the term woman. It's a person of the female sex, irrespective of age. And, you know, without wanting that to be a gotcha moment, that simply wasn't provided. The answer was, well, you know, we take the definition as to the companies that they give it to us and, you know, all this sort of nebulous stuff. So that's why I rolled it out and, uh, and asked that question. But, of, Alex, uh, how, can the workplace the gen how can the Workplace Gender Equality Agency elevate women in the workplace if they can't define what a woman is? <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, it really is the, 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 the critical question, I suppose, and I asked that as well, and there was, once again, almost tumbleweeds that went through the you know, the estimates room. So it, it is the point. If we can't actually define uh, what a woman is, how, how do you go into bat for them when it comes to pay disputes and, and all of those sorts of things? So it's a complete nonsense. Absolute but, I mean, nonsense. the person that viewers saw there is a professor, a professor, Professor Murphy, and he has said there are a variety of definitions. Where on earth did he pluck that answer from? <laughs> I think probably from looking over his shoulder while he was sitting there, to be quite honest, I have a degree of sympathy for Professor Murphy here because I suspect that he was looking over his shoulder both to that day and for the coming weeks and months if he answered the question with a simple definition that it's an adult human female, as we all would. I think what it actually does highlight is um, how difficult it is for people who even might share our views that it's a very simple question to fight against the bureaucracy and how quite, far quite. radical gender theory has actually gone yes. into um, all, all well, the departments across the well, country at the moment. Well, Alex, I mean, there's an election on Saturday. Don't Labor and the Greens on their party platforms make it clear that men can be women? And they're pushing for this to be taught in schools. Yeah, that's right. And, and look, I believe that's the case. I haven't actually physically... I don't spend a lot of time trawling through the Greens website. It'll surprise you to know. But I, I think that's right. I mean, there is this strange development. It's almost the last five years where it's, it's become almost controversial to say a woman was born a woman. Um, yeah, that's almost inconceivable five years ago, if you think back to it. So what it highlights is how, how slippery this slope is when it comes to neo-Marxism, mm. radical gender theory. Mm. Um, the reality here is, Alan, that Australians are asleep at the wheel, conservatives in particular. Um, it may seem petty. I have a lot of friends and colleagues that, that almost turn their nose up at fighting the culture wars. But we all know that politics is downstream from culture. These things are eating away at the fabric of Definitely. our society. Can I congratulate you for saying, this is Senator Antich, the man you're seeing on your screen said this, men can dress however they like, they can wear makeup, grow out their hair and do whatever else they like. But the ideological driven and unscientific belief that changes to their appearance actually makes them women can't be allowed to continue its march through our institutions, unquote. But, Senator Antich, are these institutions going to accept that a woman is a biological female? 
Well, look, Ellen, it doesn't look like at any time uh, in the near future. And of course, if, if we get a Labor Greens government um, uh, on Saturday, that is going to turbocharge. We can be pretty sure, well assured of that. Uh, that is the frightening thing for me. It's, it's not even so much the responses I was getting. I asked DFAT the same question, by the way, because there are a lot of gender programs, of course, uh, on an international level. And once again, it was taken on notice. I mean, th what that means for your viewers, of course, is I can't tell you now, I'll get back to you in a mm. month. Um, I, I think this is endemic through our bureaucracy. And I think that the sooner we wake up and we start cleaning that up, my, my suggestion has been a universal definition because as much as I hate government interference with this sort of thing, sometimes you need to tell the bureaucrats how it's going to be and we can't muck around with this stuff anymore. Well, well, there you are. We're going to talk a lot more to this man on the program. I mentioned earlier, does the Liberal Party have ability in the Parliament? Shouldn't have. Is this man here? He's got plenty of it. I should just make one point. In New South Wales, I think I've made this point to you before, we have the disturbing circumstance that parents are not informed if a child discusses gender transition with school staff. And in many instances, teachers keep this information confidential. And people are saying to me, being kept in the dark has become a family destroyer. Alex, it's good to talk to you about these issues. We've got to keep talking about them. We can't afford to give up the fight. Thank you for your time. Congratulations on what you do and all the best in the future. We'll talk more. Thanks, Alan. Great to be with you. Not at all. There he is, Senator Alex Antich, ANTIC, South Australian Senator. Look, before we go, central banks all around the world are starting to be seriously questioned. More so, there's silence on all the things that matter, or if not silence, their inability to act on the obvious. These central bankers have moved at a snail's pace when it comes to the runaway inflation now being experienced around the world. In Australia, the Reserve Bank has been dragging its feet for ages when it came to increasing interest rates. They were adamant on keeping them where they were, despite Australia's inflation being at a 21-year high. Well, three weeks ago, as you know, the cash rate lifted to 0.35%, still at a, at a low. But what are Australians to make of all the utterances by the RBA Governor Philip Lowe? Basically, Australians were told to be confident when buying houses because, quote, don't worry, we're not moving rates until at least 2024. And then the rise occurred three weeks ago. But last November, Philip Lowe said, the governor, it's still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024, unquote. Then again, on a separate occasion, last November, he said, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in next year or even early 2023. Last July, he said, if you think we're going to raise interest rates in 2023, you've got to have a much more positive forecast of wages growth than we currently have, unquote. Now we have this interest rate shock due to the Reserve Bank either being too slow or not upfront with the realities we face. But not only in Australia is this stuff occurring. The Bank of England has come under fire from its former governor, Lord Mervyn King. Lord King has warned that the Bank of England had made, quote, serious mistakes, unquote, in the fight against inflation. On London radio, Lord King said, and I quote, central banks around the world have made serious mistakes in not acting much sooner, unquote. He went on, central bankers around the world are very confident that inflation will simply fall right back to the target. But when people come to set prices or bargain for wages, they won't necessarily assume that inflation will come straight back down to 2%, unquote. The interview came amid official UK figures showing that businesses are attempting to fill a record number of vacancies by offering the highest 
pay rises in decades. But 7.1 million people on the sidelines don't want a job. Jobs everywhere, but no one to fill them. Same can be said here. It's okay for some, but economists are concerned that sharply rising wages will drive prices higher in a self-sustaining inflationary boom, seriously undercutting living standards. Whoever is treasurer after this Saturday will have a mammoth task on their hands. Make no mistake, the economy will be front and centre in the next few years. You can vet climate change and all this other nonsense. Rising interest rates, labour shortages and the ballooning cost of living will be the only game in town. The worst part is Australia isn't in the best state, heading towards a trillion dollars of debt. Political decisions taken for the short term have put us where we are. And we're going to pay a high price down the track for that. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with us. See you tomorrow night on ADH.TV, where I'll give you an overview of where I think the cards will fall this Saturday. See you tomorrow night. Good night.